I'm Brooke Schley, and welcome back to Soundtrack Stories. Today, I'm talking to Brian Tyler, who is one of the most sought-after composers in Hollywood. He has done some pretty huge blockbusters like Iron Man 3, Thor The Dark World, Avengers Age of Ultron, not to mention franchises like The Expendables and The Fast and the Furious. All in all, his films have brought in over $12 billion. Now, most people associate Brian with these big-budget popcorn flicks, but he's actually a very versatile composer with achievements in almost every genre. This summer, he's going back to his jazzier comedy roots with a movie you probably have heard of by now. It's called Crazy Rich Asians. And in fact, the music you're hearing right now is from the Just Release soundtrack. Now, keep in mind when we recorded the interview, the movie hadn't been released yet, but since then it's opened and it is a hit. Last I checked, it made over $33 million in its first three days. Anyway, this was such a fun episode, not only because we did the interview at his amazing home studio, but also because my sister and producing partner, Emily Schley, joined in for a few questions too. We hope you enjoy this interview with Brian Tyler as much as we did. Once again, this is Soundtrack Stories. Okay, great. This, by the way, this space is amazing. Yes. Oh, thank you. And so, and you write all the music here, right? I do. Yeah, I write uh, all. The, well, piano right behind you. I write, well, kind of more orchestral stuff there, and uh, kind of anything that's got a lot of harmonies. I'll write that way. But I'll pick up any of this cello or the guitar. Or sometimes I'll sit down with the drums. You know. It all depends on the piece. And so this is the the live room, right? The live room. We're in the live room. The control room's right there. That's where I mix, and I spend a lot of time in there as well. Do synths and, uh, you know, mix orchestra, hang out with the director. (laughs) (laughs) That's there. Yeah. And actually, you play. I think was it forty instruments? I don't. I it's somewhere in there. It's it's. Um. I one time someone had me count. I don't know why. I yeah. think it was. I don't. I'm not sure That's why. Insane. And it was it was upper thirties at the time. Yeah. And I don't know if I picked up anything. And also, some of them are kind of questionable whether or not it's like I can't count different kinds of percussion instruments that are closely related. Otherwise, you'd be in the thousands you know what I mean <laughs> like, yeah. so it has to be a distinct instrument I'm not sure where that really lands honestly but it's 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 more than I can count at least yeah know. and so you write <laughs> so you so you write the music here um, but you record a lot in London right yeah I do I, I recorded I mean you know I've recorded all over the world um, but London is happens to be a place that I'm I'm there a lot uh, for Various reasons depends on the film, um, you know, or the project. I recorded. It's kind of I would say about fifty percent of my movies are in, uh, recorded in London, and then the Formula One theme I also recorded in London. And so these studio musicians, do they ever see the music ahead of time? That's and- the thing. No, wow. <laughs> um, That's they, they really don't. It's it's amazing to me. The uh, film music can be really really difficult to play sight when, sight on scene. If you're just reading that, you know, out of nowhere, it's it's amazingly difficult so especially you know in london and in in la there's such uh virtuoso sight readers um that it always amazes me that first take how how well it you know goes i I think a lot of my notes conducting the orchestra have more to do with um like little tweaks matters of opinions that i have but they technically play it pretty much right off the bat 
Yeah. I mean, that's unfathomable to it's me. It's insane. Also, music that is outside of, you know, if we're doing a an overture or a suite where it's just music to be music, it kind of plays on its own, mm-hmm. and there's a natural cadence to it, usually even meters, everything kind of has a groove. But sometimes in film music, you know, you are, you're, you're intentionally throwing the audience um, curveballs, so you'll have something that seems like it's going one direction, then it takes a 90-degree turn really quickly to give you a shot of suspense or a surprise or the scene completely changes in the middle of it like there's a big chase going on and then it cuts to this dialogue scene in in an interior well those things musically have to happen on the dime so you know you might instead of having a a full bar of music to end out a phrase you might have 87 percent of the bar some kind of crazy subdivision and and so for them to be able to sight read that it's it's that's why it's the most difficult music to sight read in the world. You've done over 70 movies, but at the top of your head, is there which one do you think might be the most technically difficult to perform? Oh, boy. Um, that is a great question uh, in terms of technical difficulty. Um, like where you'd have to be a really superb musician yeah, to actually get right. Yeah, I mean, right. th- there's there's a bunch. I, I think that um, I remember when players kind of uh would raise their hand and say that's that's almost unplayable or can we <laughs> can we split this piece into maybe three parts i've had that a number of times I, that happened to me actually in london when i was recording the mummy last year and um eagle eye recording that in los angeles um was really wild there's a few pieces in there that were n- kind of nearly impossible and in the middle of conducting one of those pieces an earthquake started happening oh, so oh really God. yeah <laughs> right when i was on the podium yeah and people started kind of running away and i didn't know what was happening because i thought i was just moving because i was standing and conducting but everyone in their chairs you know started running and you know th- things were swinging above my head the microphones were all swinging back and forth it was pretty wild oh, wow <laughs> on top of you know, 70 films. You did Fast and Furious, about five of those. And you've been doing that for a while now. So yeah, like about five. five. I'm not even sure. I haven't yeah. really... I, I'd have to go back and count. I actually counted earlier. Okay, okay, sure thank you. Five, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've been doing this for, you know, 12, 13 years. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, it's going from... Tokyo Drift to um, The Fate of the Furious. How yeah. has the music, like, evolved? Well, it's it's kind of even crazier than that, in a way. You know, the very first Fast and Furious, which... My music was in that. It was actually licensed into it. Oh, wow. Just by coincidence, some other score I had done at the time. So before I even knew it, I was musically involved <laughs> in the Fast and Furious. But yeah, then, then um, you know, it was when Justin Lin started directing them, and, and we had done a movie over at Disney and together. And I remember he, him saying, okay, I want to, you know, I think this story needs to move into something kind of epic about you know, uh, a lot more than just racing cars. And, and right. that's why now it's evolved into this, you know, uh, f- rival faction, family, um, you know, uh, w- espionage, you know, <laughs> FBI, CIA. All so so the story has really gone into places we had no idea it would be. A perfect example showcasing how the franchise has evolved into this espionage, spy, thriller genre, like you just said, is your theme from the eighth and most recent film, The Fate of the Furious. So let's take a listen to that.
have to say, some of the earliest music you wrote for the franchise feels so different from what we just heard. When I started in that on the first Fast and Furious movie, it was closer to the original conceit, which is there's going to be some fun, there's going to be some partying, I'm going to race you for some pink slips, what's going to happen, that's it, right? <laughs> and and, and you know, it was a really yeah. cool, basic idea that was born out of love for cars and racing. It was, it was more of a kind of a fun, you know, just like party kind of vibe. Right. And going back to the first Fast and Furious movie that you did, uh, it was Tokyo Drift. And here's a snippet from, from that score. So when you wrote this song for the movie, it feels like original music, original score played a smaller role. Because of that, there was a lot of songs and there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of the, the balance wasn't as much like classic score. But then as, as the series started going, you become really attached to the characters and more involved and more involved and more involved. The score became more and more a big part of of the film to the point where I'm recording, you know, two hours of score per movie now, and it's wall to wall, and it's themes for all the characters. It's very much scored in the, if you, if you uh, stepped away from the name Fast and Furious, the way the late motifs and everything tie together is closer to Star Wars, you know, in movies, Lord of the Rings and things like that, that have motifs and and um, themes for characters and the way they all tie together. It's closer to that than it would be actually my probably first score for Fast and Furious. Speaking of motifs, I love Letty's theme uh, that we first heard almost 10 years ago in Fast Five. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah there's, there's a lot, you know, it's funny, there's a lot of music that's in the series that's, there's adagios and there's, you yeah. know, I, I, I think it would be, um, just like the movies, I think if you're only casually familiar with it just for the name or whatever you're not going to realize how much um kind of emotional content there is much every one of the movies now it has some sense of being a tearjerker right you yeah. know a true tearjerker in totally. it and so um so the music needed to go along with that and i'm finding you know about 30 percent of the music that i write for that they're they're closer to adagios and ballads than they are to action music you know you came in on that after um a couple other composers had been on it right and same thing with uh marvel going in sure and three and thor dark world yeah. And you do those back to back, and they also happen to mark the beginning of Phase Two. Phase of Two, yeah. Marvel's, um, you know, movie universe. Yeah. So, like, what were the preliminary talks kind of like between Marvel and yourself? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the Phase Two had a pivotal change in the in the tone of the characters. Um, it was, you know, for Tony Stark, um, we the first movie and the second movie where it's almost like you see him in a certain light. He's a 
the the billionaire playboy that kind of does this and that and is kind of the you know very snarky and stuff, which he he keeps that kind of right, you know yeah. snarkiness and he's always clever and funny and 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 but he was really kind of a reluctant superhero in the first two and then by the third it was kind of like him accepting his mantle as you know iron man mm-hmm. so yeah. it's almost like the first two movies you and for musically had to be played as Tony. And then by three, it was like, okay, we need a superhero theme. Or if it was done, if there was a definitive superhero theme for Iron Man in one or two, um, it, w- it would have been ahead of his character. So so I, I think that was really the reasoning on that, why it, you in, th- in three, all of a sudden you hear this theme that is very superhero-y, you know yeah. what I mean? But it was still grounded in kind of the, the human aspect. He, he didn't have a supernatural superhero theme. It was just a, it was a bigger superhero theme with a tune that you could, you know, really grasp onto. It was almost like a, you know, a little bit of rock and roll attitude, even though it was the London Philharmonic on that. Okay, so let's take a listen to the theme you wrote. This is from Iron Man 3. In contrast, at the same time, right after that, I went into Thor, Dark World, and it was almost the, not the opposite, but in a sense, um, in fact, not opposite at all, it's parallel um, in that he hadn't really become, like, God status in the first one. He was fighting with his brother and the thing, and he goes down to Earth, and it's, you know, he's just fish out of water, So, so it's a different tone, and then... He becomes full blown. I'm inheriting the mantle of Odin here, and I am going to be an actual, you know, god or demigod. And so, but the clear difference is that just the musical flavor and ingredients of writing a theme for someone that's supernatural versus human just sounds differently. I mean, they're just different scales or different everything. So that's why, for me, it was easy to keep them distinguished. After Thor, your work with Marvel continued to. You did Avengers Age of Ultron, and I know that with that score, you were able to incorporate some of the themes from Iron Man and Thor, which we just heard, uh, but you had to write a lot of new stuff too, right? When it came to Avengers and I started, I was I wrote Vision theme, and then there was, you know, Scarlet, and there's, 
I mean, there's there was so many. The Hulk, the Hulk had to have a Hulk and Black Widow theme, and then there was the Ultron theme, and he did a ride, and all these different things. It was like that was at least there were two characters that were already taken care of. For uh, movies like the Avengers where they have there's just so many characters and plot lines. Right. Uh, melodies are so important because it can sort of distinguish and help you follow along. You hear it. It does. And but I I think I'd read somewhere that that these days these directors, movie studios, they actually don't want memorable melodies. Sometimes, yeah, I've been told that specifically. I mean, in that, in that case, I don't know why, why? they hire me because it's. I mean, I'm I'm a motif driven composer that's how i do it i can grew up with john williams and yeah. and and so i i just if you're gonna have sonic wallpaper i it why do you have music i just don't even you didn't have sound effects you know uh, but i think that the idea of having something that you can identify with brings you into that world even more because you emotionally now tie the music which is subconscious you know, it's it's happening without you knowing it, yeah. unless you are listening for it with your brain. But the normal moviegoer is going to enjoy the movie. They're not going to think, oh, this theme ties to this. And they're not doing that. Yeah. It happens subconsciously. <laughs> and sometimes the problem is, in Hollywood, is that you will get people that will sit down when it comes time to talk about the music, and they will watch something from the perspective of, okay, now we're going to do the music talk, right? We're going to talk about music here. So they're just listening with their brains. Mm. And they're not taking it in as you would if you were in a movie theater and you just have your popcorn there. Right. It's a totally different experience if you're if you're listening just for the music. Oh, yeah, isn't that too much this? Or, oh, you can notice that the music here is... Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think people realize that no one goes in the movie and just is heckling the screen like, oh, a photographer shot this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we, we know that there's no orchestra sitting there <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> outside of the camera shot, like, playing away. Yeah. So so it's kind of just, it's just one step away from that kind of absurd thinking. And it's bizarre that you, st- I, I just, I, you hear it. Um, written or that there's a score that you can listen to now that is locked and will forever exist that uh, it contains something within it that you had to really fight for oh yeah 
is there an example that you can think of? I know that's kind of a broad. Yeah, I can think of there, you know, it's kind of like where you, there's been times where, um, you know, it's a question of should there even be music in the scene or not? And I fought both ways, you know, where I'm thinking, I really think this needs to be, I think the best use of composition here is no composition. Um, because I have this seven minute piece coming right after it. And if we, have this moment with no music it'll feel empty in a way that is good and let it breathe and then when we come in it'll really say something and i've had those discussions because i think sometimes in the process of when you're editing a movie um your visual effects aren't done it's not color timed it doesn't look real nice yet and you see time code running all over it and you hear the background guy foley guy walking around and it just doesn't and so music kind of can cover those things and it makes it feel more finished and it's a crutch on accident and so it's like just trust your movie that that we can take it out here and put it you know and and say something here and it'll be more dynamic instead of going wall to wall where music is just you lose your dynamics because it's playing the entire time so sometimes you know it's it's gone both ways. You know, I've I've had it where you'll get some kind of counterintuitive some will feel that it sounds brilliant to say something counterintuitive like, wouldn't it be scarier if there's no music? And sometimes it's not scarier if there's no music. Oftentimes it's much scarier when there's music because you can misdirect and stuff. So I see it kind of both ways and I've had my little debates over the years and, and I, I you know, that's why I like working with the directors I work with because we actually um, you know, we see eye to eye in terms of listening to each other. We might not always agree, but at least they'll listen. Would you say it's really essential to know the process behind the movie making itself to be a composer? Yeah, I mean, this is something I, I've talked about. I, I think that that as film composers, you should certainly know the ins and outs of filmmaking. I, I know it seems maybe a little out there to say that people should learn about color timing and all that. But I, for me, I think it's absolutely necessary because, you know, a director is not going to typically speak music. They're going to speak film. And so the more you can talk about things, they're not going to know, well, why don't you, Sforzando here in a, in a Super Christian, you know, all these terminologies, music terminology. They're not mm -hmm. going to say that for the scene, but they may say something like, okay well this dolly shot and then we do a rack focus and because of that then you're going to do color grading with it they, they may start throwing things out like that which if you don't know what they're talking about you're not going to be able right. to musically kind of capture a musical dolly okay you all your meaning is you're, you're you're getting closer to the the subject so there's something important going on so music should go with the dolly shot and and um, if you think Dolly is like the name of a genetically cloned sheep, then <laughs> that's true too. But, yeah. you know, you're going to, it's, uh, and I remember, look, the first time I did a movie, I had no idea what he was talking about. So I'm speaking from <laughs> experience of ignorance because I didn't go to film school. You know, um, there was a lot of terminology that I had to just learn the hard way. But you knew a little bit about movies before becoming a composer, right? Um, it just happens to be that I used to shoot a lot, so I knew a lot about cameras and lighting and, and things long before I, I was a composer. So, um, so that helped. But in terms of just 
there's a lot of acronyms in 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 post production, so and I didn't I. know any of them. <laughs> I was like LTC Vitsy, what are you talking? About? <laughs> you know, like I just use all these terms, and they would ask me questions. I didn't want to volunteer that I didn't know. You know, now I I am proud of the, of the answer. I don't know. I I say it all the time. It's like I don't know. I want to learn. But back then, no. Do you want? I remember that conversation. They handed me. They're going to turn over the movie to me. And then we're turning over reels. Reels, cool. But they're double reels. Double reels. <laughs> Very nice. And, and like, that's even better, double. And then they're like, well, do you want uh, Bitsy or LTC? That was the question. And uh, I was like, and I wasn't even sure if it like was LTC was an acronym or that was like LTC, like a word, like, oh, LTC, you know. And so I just was like, I'll have the I'll have the last one, <laughs> you know, I'll have that one. Give me that one. So I got double reels and Vitsy, which, of course, didn't make any sense. Every time I put the, you know, the movie in, I heard, you know, the time code like blaring. And I had to deal with that my entire first movie. <laughs> I didn't want to admit I didn't know what it was. <laughs> what movie was that? No, Bartender. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they didn't. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, they give you a shot. Like, that's the thing. Is like, how do you get a movie if you've never done a movie? And right. I somehow, because they loved this song I wrote so much that they were willing to, like, tolerate me as the composer so they could get this one song. <laughs> that was my bargaining chip. What song was it? It's called The Sun Will Fall. And it was a pop tune I wrote. And it was kind of like an indie rock, radio heady kind of thing. They wanted it. He, he's this, it, the lyrics, everything. It's perfect for our movie. The director says, I'm like, well, you're going to have to, I'm going to have, I want to do the score then. You know, and I was like, I'll do the score for free. It doesn't matter. And <laughs> yeah. I just, that's, that is the deal. So like, uh, and, and, <laughs> and the thing is, they they really. I had written a requiem that they heard that they loved. They loved the piece, and he he's like, you know, but you can't music edit one six minute requiem piece into a eighty minute score. Yeah, you know, yeah. so I had to write something. So they hire you, even though you've never done a movie before. What was that like for you? I imagine there'd be a, a learning curve there. I mean, it was insane the way I did it. I basically wrote it freewheeling watching the movie not using time code or oh. any click track there's no bars there's no grid not, it was just all free ball watch a scene and record one instrument then i'd sit down and i'd play and i'd play them all whoop sorry i just hit the hit the hit the microphone <laughs> so i would watch a scene and i would you know just let the the film run and then i would sit down and play the instruments one by one well, we have that Requiem from Bartender, and this is technically the first piece you ever wrote for a movie. So let's take a listen. Actually, um, you've been writing your own music since you were really young, yeah. right? And so how did that, how did it start for you? I don't know how it started exactly. I mean, I think what it was is that when I sat down at the piano, I, I don't know if this is the case for all composers, but I immediately took to just making up music. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I liked, 
there was there was three aspects of sitting down at piano, and it also I sat down at the drums and the guitar first, and then mm. piano. But I was still five, I don't know, something like that. But I listen. My parents would be playing music. Could have been anything. Could be Beatles. Could be Steely Dan. Could be John Williams. It could be whatever Prokofiev. And so they had a wide range. Uh, so I'd hear you know something. Let's say Etta James and uh. uh or Ray Charles, I remember, and I would start just comping it, and I would play along with it, and I'd, that was a natural thing. But then I would riff on it, and I would kind of change it. Then the other third aspect of it would be I, there was sheet music, and that was what I was kind of least interested in, except to try to figure out stuff that I couldn't figure out. I got kind of, at a point, obsessed with really difficult music, you know, like on the piano, like Chopin and, and Rachmaninoff and Liszt, and so that I would need to reference, and I would see how close I could get. But in terms of writing, um, I think it was because uh, I loved films music and I listened to it to relive movies, like on my headset, just I'd be on a bus or something and I'd be listening to whatever movie and old or new, everything from Lawrence Arabia to Dark Crystal to Star, whatever. And I put it on and I would imagine it in my head. So kind of the corollary of that would be I would read a book, like a science fiction book, and then I would write music to the book because it didn't have a score. So yeah. it, it, was a, it was a fulfilling a need. I, I was so used to music going along with story, even when I would read a story, It'd be frustrating that there wasn't music for it, and I could not use like, you know, the the score from some film and and play it when I was reading a book because I knew it so well. I knew what scene it was, so I would see if I put on Wrath of Khan while I'm reading some other science fiction novel. I see, I hear Khan yelling at you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and and and, and, uh, and so I you know I. I I needed to write music. It was like I was compelled. It was it was like it was like a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the first uh, one of the books that you composed as a kid was Children of Dune, right? Right. And right. then you ended up scoring the music for that t- yeah, for that TV series. Yeah, right? yeah, for yeah, exactly for the MOW. I it's really that's a particularly strange example because um, I I loved Dune. And the Dune novels, and and I was reading them, and and I then I had seen the you know the David Lynch movie, of course, and which is really weird and and kind of spectacularly strange, and I love it, but it's kind of just bizarre, and <laughs> but I love the music from it, and uh, it's really ethereal and it has great themes, and and so it got me into reading Children of Dune and Dune Messiah, which are two. The, to these these two books and so I started writing music around and I have sheet music around of just kind of jot down ideas and I wrote these themes and then my friend Greg Yatanis who I scored a movie of his he's a director he called me he's like I'm doing I'm going to be doing both Children of Dune and Dune Messiah we're going to smush it into calling it just Children of Dune but it's both of those novels combined and uh I'm like what? That's that's amazing! I, I fantastic. So when I started to score it, I the very first notes of the it's the beginning of the whole movie, and it's also the beginning of the score. It's called Seleucus Secundus, I believe, 
and that I that that melody that first piece was something I wrote when I was 12. Wow. Yeah, and I just it was like kind of a nod to thank you earlier self for being <laughs> such a weirdo. <laughs> Demanding that, to write music to a book. That you remembered it too or did you have it written down? Um I remembered it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remembered it. We actually have that. Here is that melody you wrote as a kid. you say is your breakthrough score where oh. you felt I'm a movie composer oh, boy. Uh, uh, hasn't happened uh, <laughs> I you know I think in my mind I always had these these goals of when I when I was thinking okay when X happens I'll feel that I'm a I've made it or yeah. I'm a film composer and I remember the first one was literally Okay, if I go into a movie theater and I see my name by itself, music by, then I'm. Yeah. But that that lasted like two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know that was that was good, and then I started thinking, what's the next thing? And so then it was like, oh, I want a soundtrack released. Well, the next movie I did, Six String Samurai, soundtrack was released. Cool, great. Then I was like, well, okay. Then I did, you know, ten or twelve indie movies, and I thought, okay, what I, what I really need to do is I want to conduct an orchestra for a movie. Well, then I did that. And then it was, oh, I want to do a studio film. So it kind of just kept going on this slippery slope, uphill slippery slope. Um, But I do remember something that that I think is probably the most, the thing that made a distinction, which is when I scored Frailty for a director, Bill Paxton, who passed away, great friend, great director and actor, but even better director. Um, I did that movie, which is a very strange, dark movie, Matthew McConaughey, all about, it, it's, it's very, it's like a Hitchcockian nightmare. It's amazing. It's really good. So how did frailty then lead to other things? What happened was I got a call from William Friedkin, who had seen that movie, oh. and who I idolized, director of French Connection and Exorcist. And I mean, I'm I'm a kid, you know. I just scored this this indie movie, and then he went and saw it, and he loved it, and he loved the score. And he went out and bought the album, and somehow he tracked me down. And he was like, "I'm doing this movie studio film over at Paramount called The Hunted," and. Um, 
you know, we'd, we'd love to talk to you about writing the music for it. So wow. when I did that, right next door, uh, Richard Donner, the director of Superman and The Omen and all that, was he was directing Timeline. And that was happening as I was writing and working on The Hunted. That was literally next door at Paramount. They were working on the mix and doing things, and Jerry Goldsmith was scoring it. And um, that it, it didn't it didn't work out for Jerry on that film. And he was, I you know, I I, I think he was probably getting you know he's becoming ill, and mm-hmm. and and that sickness was coming over him, and and it was really tragic. And and for whatever reason, they needed a new score, and and. Um, so they called me in to do that as well, as well as doing Star Trek on the Paramount Lot Enterprise at the time. So it's weird how this one thing from frailty all of a sudden kind of, and, and then you could you could see right after that how you know you know that's when then you know Steven Spielberg heard my music and then I went over you know it's just like it was one thing after another and that led yeah. to eagle eye boom boom so so I don't know if there was ever a moment where I it kind of became a but I I feel that that was such an important William Friedkin going to the movie theater that day and choosing frailty yeah well I know I've, I've read that a huge uh figure in your life was has been John Williams and sure. he's been a huge inspiration to you and uh, you've actually said that he's the most underrated uh, composer <laughs> on earth, which I personally agree with. Yeah. But I would like to hear why you I- I explain that. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing about John that's amazing. Uh, there's so many things that are amazing, but one of the things that is amazing is that that he has so many well-known pieces that anyone can hum and sing right back to you, which is like no other living composer. But the if you take away and delete all of those well-known things, he's still the greatest. Because all the the interstitial music and the 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 cues that are aren't the main themes of these movies are so ama- incredible and the the harmonization and the the skill at which he watches a scene and 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 emotionally kind of manipulates it and and just the sense of musicality of it is is so next level that that not only has he written amazing music that is for films that people don't know as well necessarily, but um, it's it's all the connective music on its own would still he'd be still to me considered the greatest. And so so I I you know it's almost like I think he's considered the greatest comp- you know living or dead either film composer of all time for almost for the wrong reasons um but either category he's almost like he's one he's he's almost like the 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 best and the number two you know like yeah. at the same time yeah. he takes up a few slots on that list you know and uh and and i ha- and i have a lot to thank him for of course in my career not only kind of in a you know, philosophical way, would I have my career? But literally, I wouldn't have my career. So, um, he 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 was very helpful very early on to me, and and um, and it's it, it's it's been an honor just getting to know him, and you know, giving uh, the you know introducing him as lifetime achievement award, you know, and and all all that kind of thing is just amazing to me, um, because it's it's what i grew up on you know and it's why i became me yeah what if i mean there's so many <laughs> scores he's written is there one that sticks out 
as well, your favorite? Or there, there are there are a number. I mean, it, depends uh, on the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, I overall e- ET, you know. I've I switch every time someone asks me to because um, Star Wars and ET and Empire and Raiders and Close Encounters and Schindler's but um, I and and certainly memoirs of a geisha but one of the ones that I really really love that I think people don't usually mention is Seven Years in Tibet and I just absolutely I love that theme and and the sub themes in that are just amazing incredible score. Actually, my uh, one of my favorites is Sabrina, and I feel like no one ever talks oh, about that. Oh, Sabrina, yeah, yeah. Even though he actually said that that's his favorite. Yeah, Sabrina is amazing, uh, and Sabrina was one that I was, uh, uh, you know, like Crazy Rich Asians is my Sabrina. I mean, that would be like that is um, that was something that definitely came to mind when I went to start writing that. Now, Crazy Rich Asians hasn't even been released yet, but it's already getting huge buzz. As someone who's known for superhero movies, why would they go to you and say, Brian Tyler, we want you to do this rom-com? Yeah, um, you know, here's the thing that's kind of strange. Uh, Early on, I did comedies mostly. Like, Frailty was the one. That's why I did Frailty, to connect to the last conversation, is because I was getting comedies kind of, easily and i had yeah. done two comedy series on tv and then i'd done you know uh, some really offbeat comedies and a piece of my heart romantic comedy about hotep and so, so all these different things and so i was looking to well, i wanted to do serious fair now yeah. at the time also i had done a comedy with diane keaton called plan b and the whole score was jazz it was a big band score not many people saw the movie but um it was great. And 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 then because of that I did a movie with um, Jeremy Irons about F. Scott Fitzgerald, which I uh, called Last Call, and it was all jazz as well. Now that's like 17 years ago or something, right? So skip way ahead, and I'm doing like, you know, the thing that I had to prove that I could do, which is like, 
I remember having to prove to Paramount, I think it was, no, I can do an action movie. You know what I mean? You know, no, no, really, I can't. Like, really, I don't know. You know, and and so I had, so I started doing super. So now I'm kind of more known as superhero and big popcorn movies. But really, my roots are in a completely different place. The thing that's so cool about Crazy Rich Asians is that John Chu directed it. Who you'd worked with before, right? I had worked with John Chu on Now You See Me Too. Now You See Me and Now You See Me Too, which I scored both of them, are really comedies. They're 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 kind of caper action, but they're comedy. Woody Harrelson is kind of the you know, they all have the so. There was enough of that, and there was enough kind of that groove. I kind of was like my ode to Lalo Schifrin, those scores, kind of 70s. He's like, I bet Brian could do jazz. And his idea was to do a score, instead of licensing songs from the 40s and the 50s that sounded really swanky and crazy rich, right? That was the thing. Crazy rich sounds swanky jazz, kind of just cool, you know. Um those songs exist. There's Benny Goodman out there and everything. But he wanted newly written score songs. So that's very rare. Does that ever happen? Eh, you know, like you can name a couple. La La Land? I mean, not very many. And I knew him. And he's like, I know you can do jazz. I know we can do this. How did Warner Brothers react when you told them you wanted to do a 1940s style big band score? They were thinking... Their proposal to me was like, oh, okay, you want to do this? Cool. Yeah, no, that's fine. Like they kind of... You know, we we trust you, but it's gonna be what is it gonna be like kind of like a contemporary thing with some guitars, you know what I mean? Make it kind of cool, like because they knew I do, like I write pop songs, and I think that was the visions of what they thought it would be. And then the cool thing was when we mentioned, no, I think we want this to sound like it's from like 1956, jazz big band. They did not do the thing that you would think a studio would do, which was freak out. They're like, that's amazing. But the cool thing about the music department at Warner Brothers is they're, they're musicians. And, like, you know, Paul and Amanda and all of them, they, they, they know their music. And they could see the way John shot it, which is, like, Technicolor, larger than life. You know, the lettering, Saul Bass type of, you know, the architecture of it, the, the le- you know, everything has that throwback feel. And so we hopped on board, did it all. I mean, literally, you, we could jump back in the Wayback Time Machine and record this score in, like, 1945, and it would sound exactly the same. Um, so that was, that was a real treat. Well, we cannot wait to see Crazy Rich Asians. But luckily, right now, we have a sample of the score, so let's take a listen.
So, before we go, after listening to all this music and knowing how many movies you score every year, year after year, do you ever take any time off? <laughs> okay, so that's a great question. Um, not really. I, I, I was got it. So I'm very defensive about this with my family and friends, and I'm like, no, I just, and I'm always saying, that, and and just last night, this is a very fresh conversation. <laughs> like I, I kind of got into it, and I was trying to defend my honor of no, 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 I take time off thing, and I had mentioned that I'd, I had gone on vacation or. So I, I was like, yeah, I, I did that. Remember? Don't you remember? It was, I was like, it was over a year ago, but I did. And I was in Paris and I went to, you know, I named all these cities. And, uh, you know, I was in Poland and Dallas. And, and uh, it was my mother. It was a conversation. And, and she's like, you, well, you, you realize that every single city you just mentioned, you either played a concert and that's why you're there or those other three cities you mentioned you were doing the premiere and junket for the movies that you just finished which was fast and furious and the mummy and that's why you were there you weren't on vacation you just happened to be on a plane every other day you know so well this kind of counts so anyway no <laughs> well I, this has been so great i we're just this, oh, this great. another yeah. nice time talking to you. It's awesome. Thank you. Ah, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're the third episode. So oh, yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. Okay. Right, <laughs> like I'll check three. it out for sure. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much. Of it's course. Great. Yeah, yeah. Good to have you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we're supposed to end these things. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, I don't either. That's good. <laughs> well, that's it. That's our show. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe rate and tell your friends also you can learn more about this episode and brian tyler's music at our website at soundtrackstoriespodcast.com till next time bye